0: Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys today. It's great for all of our Bridgepoint family who's watching online this morning as well. We love you guys. We're excited to be a part of your Sunday morning. Uh, Today is a very special day because not only are we wrapping up our Blockbuster Weekend series, but it is also officially Christmas season, right? We get to listen to Christmas music. We get to eat Christmas cookies. And most importantly, we get to watch Christmas movies. And I don't know about you, but in our house, we're averaging about like one and a half Christmas movies watched per day. Um, We always start with the classics, right? You got Die Hard, Gremlins, and then you can go from there. So uh, this morning, we're going to wrap up our Blockbuster Weekend series by talking about not just one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time, but I think it is one of the greatest movies ever made. And that's the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. But before we jump into that, Uh, I want to let you guys know about something exciting coming up here at Bridgepoint. Uh, We know that 2020 has been a year where there's been a lot of changes, and a lot of things haven't happened like they normally do. In fact, I don't know if your family was like mine. Even our Thanksgiving plans got changed this year. We didn't get to see family that we normally get to see, but I think that at Christmas time, there's some traditions that we love to keep the same, and so we are continuing our annual tradition of having our candlelight Christmas Eve service on Christmas Eve. We'll have two services this year, one at four o'clock and one at five o'clock. And these are family friendly services. We do have childcare for ages three and under, but everybody else, we invite you to bring your whole family. There's some surprises some for the kids. Um, and we are going to do an online service, but we're not streaming this service. It's a completely different service available online for those who are going to choose to attend online. But if you want to attend in person, I got to tell you, we have to limit space because of COVID. And in our four o'clock service, we're asking people to reserve seats. The four o'clock service is already like 90% full. So if you want to come to the four o'clock service, get on your phone right now. I see some of you already playing games anyway. Go to bpc.life. There's a little banner at the top that says reserve your seat for Christmas Eve. You can go ahead and do that. We also have uh, several more seats available in the five o'clock service as well. But well, this morning, we're wrapping up this series by talking about the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Now, this movie came out in December of 1946, okay? So I'm about to spoil the whole movie, but let's be honest. You had 74 years to watch this movie, okay? Okay. I don't feel bad about it. In fact, I don't want to hear anybody say, oh, we were going to watch it tonight and you spoiled it. No, I didn't do that. You've had every year of your entire life. Christmas Eve, it's on all the time, okay? But if you've seen the movie, you know that it centers on a man named George Bailey. And George is a guy with big dreams. He wants to travel the world, but he's kind of stuck in the town of Bedford Falls. It's a small town where he's grown up. In fact, his dad owns the building and loan in town. And, and so he's ready to get off. He wants to go to Europe. He wants to travel to Asia. He wants to see everything. But the night before he's ready to leave, his father unexpectedly passes away. And so he has to take over his family business. But he does so on the condition that once his younger brother graduates high school, his brother will take over so George can go and travel the world. Now, when his brother graduates high school, he's offered a scholarship to go to college. And George doesn't feel right about asking his brother to give up that opportunity. And so he says, you go off to college. I'll stay here for four more years. But once you graduate, come back, and then I'll leave. But when his brother gets back from college, George finds out that his brother's been offered this lucrative job with his future father-in-law and George can't bring himself to ask his brother to give that up. And so he ends up deciding, I'll just run the building and loan, and I'll build this life here in Bedford Falls. Now, the movie kind of turns on a fateful Christmas Eve night when the bank examiner shows up to make sure that George has plenty of money to cover all the loans and and outstanding balances in the building and loan. But his kind of absent-minded uncle accidentally lost $8,000. That's a lot now, but especially in nineteen forty six. And so George realizes like this is gonna go sideways. He's gonna have to file for bankruptcy, he's gonna be arrested, possibly serve prison time. And he's kind of reflecting on his life. He's stuck in a town he doesn't wanna be in. He's working a job that he doesn't want to have, and now he's gonna go to prison for it. And so he walks to this bridge and he's ready to jump off and end his life. And if you stop there, you would think there is no way this movie should be called It's a Wonderful Life, right? It should be called It's a Horrible, Awful Life, because that's that's where George is at. But then God sends an angel named Clarence and Clarence shows George what the world would be like if he'd never been born. And all of a sudden he realizes the impact that he'd made. He kind of comes to his senses. He runs home. The whole town shows up. They all donate money so that he has enough money to cover the 8,000 that he was short. And it kind of ends with him looking up to heaven and giving like a nod to Clarence like, thanks man, you saved my life. Now I know it's just a movie. But I wonder if George's life had continued, would he look back on that night and think, man, if not for God, I never would have been here. If not for God, I would have jumped off that bridge. You know, I wonder if as his daughters grew up, if he would sit at their wedding and think, man, if not for God, I wouldn't be able to see this today. If his grandkids ran up and jumped in his lap, if he would think, if not for God, I wouldn't get to meet my grandchildren If his son grew up and took over the business, he would think, if not for God, I never would have seen him fulfill his purpose like that. And I wonder how many of us have had an if not for God kind of moment in our lives. One of those moments where you realize that if God hadn't shown up, things wouldn't have worked out. In fact, this morning, I want to look at an example of an if-not-for-God kind of moment for God's people, the, the nation of Israel. We're going to be looking at a story found in 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to jump in to verse 12. Now, we're picking up at the end of the story, so I'm going to read the verse, and then I'm going to give us some context. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Afterward, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shin. He named it Ebenezer, explaining, The Lord has helped us to this point. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel's territory again. The Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. Okay, what the heck is going on in this story? a little Bible history lesson for you. The the Israelites were arch enemies with the Philistines. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, they're battling back and forth. If you're familiar with the story, David and Goliath, Goliath was a Philistine. And so they have this history where, where there's really no love lost between them. And the Israelites had just scored a decisive victory against the Philistines. And so the prophet Samuel kind of sets up this stone. He calls it his Ebenezer stone. And that's kind of their, if not for God, like, Every time they look at that stone, they would think, Man, if not for God, we would have been destroyed. If not for God, we would have been defeated. It reminds me of that old song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Growing up, I thought it had something to do with Scrooge. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about this story right here. It's this moment where the Israelites could always look back and say, if not for God, things wouldn't have turned out the way they did. And I wonder if you're here today and maybe you have an if not for God kind of moment. If not for God, maybe you'd still be in the hospital bed. know, If not for God, maybe your marriage would have fallen apart. If not for God, maybe your kids would have overdosed. If not for God, maybe your financial state would have been ruined. If not for God, you might not be alive today. I don't know about you, but I know I have those moments in my life. If not for God, I wouldn't be here today. But see, they're not just moments because it says that God continued to use his hand to keep the Philistines at bay. I know this year it feels like there's a lot of the enemy encroaching in on our territory. And I don't know about you, but I'd love for God to kind of take his hand and push my enemies away, kind of push those things to the side. See, it wasn't just a moment. It was this pattern of God protecting his people over and over and over again. In fact, I love what it says in verse 14. It says, the cities from Ekron to Gath, which they had taken from Israel, were restored. Israel even rescued their surrounding territories from Philistine control. There was also peace peace between Israel and the Amorites. See, the the Philistines had encroached on their territory, but after God had set them free, the Israelites went and they they reclaimed those cities that had been taken from them. They, They reclaimed their territory. Not only that, they took new territory. And I want you to know, if you're here today, God has some territory for you to take. In other words, God has some ground he wants you to cover. He's got a purpose and a plan for your life, and he wants you to expand that territory. But here's the reality. For a lot of people, this has been a tough year. And maybe through no fault of your own, no sin, but man, maybe the enemy has just, over the course of the last 11 months, he's taken things from you. Listen, I'm here to declare over you and me today that what the enemy has taken in the last 11 months, that God would give it back to you this last month. Not only that he would give it back, he would give back even more. See, maybe you're here today and you've lost your peace. God can restore it. Maybe you're here and, and you've lost your hope. God can give it anew. Maybe you're here today and you've lost your marriage. God can heal it. Maybe you're here today and you've lost your finances. God can replace it. Maybe you're here today and you've lost your purpose. God has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you. He has a promise for you. Amen? And listen, we read in Scripture that in Christ Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen. That means anything that God has promised you, you can take it to the bank. And I think sometimes we feel guilty about saying that that God wants to bless us because we think, well, well, is that prosperity theology? Listen, I'm not saying that God's going to bless you with a big house and a big bank account and a nice Ferrari. That's not what I'm saying. But I do believe that he is a good father who wants to bless you. He has good things for you. But the reality is that we read the end of the story here and we think, man, well, well, I want that. I'd love to have that kind of promise. But what we forget sometimes is that his promises are attached to a process. See, God's promises are always attached to a process. Here's what I mean. Look at the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus once encountered a blind man. And he said, what do you want? And the blind man said, I want to see. So Jesus spits into the dirt. He makes a paste. He puts it on the man's eyes. And he says, go wash this off. The man washed it off. And then he could see. See, there was the promise of healing, but there was also the process he went to to bring about the healing. Jesus had a friend named Lazarus, and Lazarus passed away. And when Jesus showed up in town, Lazarus' sisters came out. He said, Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus said, don't worry, I am the resurrection. You're going to see your brother again. They say, yeah, well, we know one day we'll see him again. Jesus says, no, you don't understand. Take me to see Lazarus. So I take him to this tomb, and he says, roll the tomb away. Lazarus, come out. And all of a sudden, this man who is dead is walking again. There's the promise of resurrection, and there's the process where Jesus brings about the resurrection. Jesus once encountered some lepers, and he told them, go bathe in this pool. They went and washed, and when they came out of the pool, they were cleansed of their skin disease. See, there was the promise of healing, then there was the process of healing. And I think a lot of times we love the promise, right? We love the promises of God. I'm going to claim the promises, but we don't always love the process through which Jesus brings us the promise, See, I kind of intentionally set it up this way. We read the end of the story first because that's where you get the amen in, right? Like, amen, I'm gonna take my territory back this year. Amen, his promises are yes and amen. Like, we love that stuff. But it's not as much fun to talk about obedience, is it? In fact, in the church world, I think especially, we get caught up comparing blessings, right? We say, well, why didn't I get blessed financially like that? Why don't I have their marriage? Why don't my kids behave like that? Why don't I get the career like that? And we're so caught up in comparing blessings. Maybe instead of comparing blessings, we ought to start comparing obedience. Because sometimes we want things that we're not willing to work for. We want God to bless us, but we don't want to be obedient to him. We want the end of the story, but we don't want to live out the beginning of the story. And so the question is, okay, what is that process that we have to walk through? If we're supposed to be obedient in order to see God's promises fulfilled, what does that look like? I want to look back at the beginning of the story now and see what is the process that the Israelites went through in order to receive the promise. Let's look back at verse 2. It says, Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kiriath-Jerah. Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. And I want to stop here for a moment because there's a lot of context to this story. See, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to worship, the Jewish people would go to the temple. Because the temple is where you would find the Ark of the Covenant. And that was where God's presence dwelt. In fact, they, they held this in such high regard, you would never actually pick up the Ark. You would use these sticks to kind of carry it around because the last time somebody touched the Ark, they died. Right? You just don't prance into the presence of God like you treat that with honor and awe and respect. Now, thankfully, because of Jesus, we don't have to go to a building to encounter the presence of God. You don't have to serve on a dream team to encounter the presence of God. We can encounter Jesus anywhere. But in the Old Testament, they would long to go worship where the ark was. But unfortunately, at some point, the Philistines were battling the Israelites, and they stole the ark. And so the Israelites had to go on this journey to fight the Philistines and get it back. Now, our story opens up by saying, it's been 20 years since they got the ark back. It's been 20 years since they brought the presence of God back into the community. But here's what I find interesting they have the presence of God, but they're still fighting the same battles. They have the presence of God, but they're still facing the same enemies. And what this tells me is you can have the presence of God in your life, but not have the power of God in your life. You can have the presence of God in your life, but still be fighting the same addictions. You can have the the, the presence of God in your life, but still be battling the same thoughts, still fighting the same wounds you, you can have the presence of God, but not have his power. See so see, what I mean is you can have salvation, but you don't necessarily have freedom. And some of you are here today, and you have the presence of God in your life. Your salvation is secure, but you're still fighting the same battles, and what God wants for you is something more. He wants you to access his power. He wants you to have freedom from those things. So the question is, how do we have that freedom? How, how do we experience the promise? Will you go through the process? Look at verse 3. Samuel told them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the Asherahs that are among you. Dedicate yourselves to the Lord and worship only him. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the Baals and the Asherahs and only worshiped the Lord. So Samuel starts by saying, listen, you guys have set up these idols to other people. In your houses, you've got these idols to bail, these asterisks. You have to go in, you have to check your heart. You have to check your heart. You have to get those idols out of there. And I think the same principle applies to us. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. The first step to, fulfill, to see God's promises fulfilled is we have to examine our heart. We have to examine our heart and see what idols are in our lives. I remember having this conversation with somebody one time and they said, well, I don't have any idols. I don't have any like little wooden statues that I pray to or that I'm lighting candles to. And that's not what we're talking about when we talk about idols. An idol is anything that receives worship from you. You say, well, I don't worship anything other than God. Well, the word worship actually comes from worthship, Like when we give worth and value to something else. I love this definition of worship. It's whatever you give your mind's attention and your heart's affection to. Whatever has your thoughts and your hearts, that's the thing that you're worshiping. And I always tell people this, I know what you're worshiping if you let me look at your calendar and your bank account. What you spend your time on and what you spend your money on will reveal to you what is most important to you, what is getting your worship. It will reveal the idols in your heart. I think a lot of us here today, we struggle with idols. I think some of us are here today and we struggle with the idol of our work. Because you go to work, and you're trying to advance in your career, and you're trying to make a certain amount of money, and you want that nice big office, and and man, your work is something that consumes all your attention when you're there, and then you come home, but you're not actually home. Because you're checking your email, and you're planning the next day, and you're thinking about the next move you're going to make, and man, for some of us, our career has become an idol. For some of us, it's your goals and your hopes and your dreams. You know, you'd love to retire by the lake and relax, and and that's the only thing that motivates you. It gets all of your thought life, all of your money. Everything goes into fulfilling your goals, and you've never stopped to ask if they're God's goals. I think for some of us, our kids are an idol. If I can step on some toes this morning. See, a lot of times we've rearranged our family now where the kids become the most important people. And can I just tell you, I, I love my kids, and they're important, and we do a lot of stuff for them. But listen, one day your kids are going to graduate, and my fear is that some of you are going to turn and look at your spouse and not even recognize the person you're living with because you've spent 18 years investing in your kids instead of your marriage. See, my fear is that we've allowed kids to dictate w- when we're going to worship, going to dictate what our family does, and we've allowed them to get all of our time, all of our attention, all of our finances. Listen, we love our kids, but we never want them to become an idol that becomes the most important thing in our life. See, Jesus wants to be first in our life. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if Jesus isn't first in your life, he's probably not in your life. Because it's like my wife, right? I don't think my wife would appreciate if I took other women out on dates, or I flirted with them, or I spent money buying them gifts. I don't think that would fly very well. I don't, I don't know, just a guess. But then we do the same thing to God, don't we? We flirt with other things. We spend our time, money, and attention in other places. And then we wonder why we haven't seen his promises fulfilled. It's because we have to examine our heart. Now, listen, God asked us to examine our heart, not because he wants to say, see, look how pathetic you are. How could you even think that you could be good enough? That's not, not why God asked us to examine our heart. See, God wants to wants us to examine our heart so that he can heal our heart. It reminds me of when I was trying to learn how to ride a bike. I've always been stubborn, and I was just convinced I did not need training wheels. Like, don't even put them on the bike. Like, my dad put them on, and I, like, pulled them to the side so that they weren't actually touching the ground. And... I was too small to actually like get up and stabilize the bike. So what I would do is I would take it up on this hill next to my house and I would get on it and I would start riding down really quick to pick up enough speed so I could pedal. Cause once you start going, you're not gonna fall over or so I thought. And so for about two weeks, every single day, I would go out and I would skin my knee over and over and over again. And so I would skin my knee, I would run in, and my mom would put me in the bathtub, and she'd pour hydrogen peroxide on it. And by the screams, she thought she was pouring acid into an open wound, right? And so it got to the point where I would skin my knee, and I would still run in crying, but then I would try to hide it from my mom so she wouldn't put the hydrogen peroxide on it. And she would say, no, I have to see it. Move your hand out of the way. And I wonder if you're here this morning, and God's saying, no, 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 move your hand out of the way. We got to see where the wound is so we can heal it. We we, got to see where the wound is so I can work. And listen, healing is not always pain-free. Sometimes healing comes at a cost, but we have to examine our heart so that God can begin to heal it. See, it's always a matter of the heart with God. In fact, next week, we're doing our above and beyond offering. This is our once a year offering, where as a church, we come together and we give one gift above and beyond our normal ties and offerings. And we do this so we can kind of set ourselves up for success headed into 2021. We've done some amazing mission stuff with this in the past, and we're going to talk about more of that next week. But if you call Bridgepoint your home church, listen, we never set a goal or amount that we want people to give. We do set a participation goal, though. If you call Bridgepoint your home church, we want 100% participation. Now, if Bridgepoint's not your home church, you can tune out for the next few minutes. But if this is your home church, listen, I get it. Sometimes people say, well, God just wants your money. No, no. God doesn't want your money. I mean, the thought that God would want anything, that he would lack for anything, is laughable. I mean, can you imagine God sitting up in heaven and saying, Gabriel, look at that bank account. Oh, if only we could get a little bit of that. Think of the ministry we could do. You know, God doesn't want your money, but he does want your heart. And for some of us, our finances are caught up in all of our idols. And so he's saying, listen, lay that down so I can have your heart. And some of you say, well, I can't really trust the church with with my giving. Again, Bridgepoint's your home church, and you would trust me and our church leadership with your spiritual growth and development, the most important thing in your life. But you cannot trust this church with your finances then either your priorities are in the wrong place. Or, or I would encourage you to find a church where you can trust enough to give and to serve the way that God has called us to. Because it's never been about giving. It's always been about opening our heart. Every year when it comes time for Above and Beyond, my wife and I, we begin to pray. And I'll just tell you the first number that I always come up with is like big enough to make me feel good about myself, but not too big that it actually stretches me and makes me uncomfortable. And all of a sudden we start praying and I, I'm made aware of all these issues in my heart and all these struggles that I'm dealing with. And by the time we get to next Sunday morning, I'm sure that we'll have kind of come together and, and figured out what it is that God's calling us to do. But I would just encourage you guys, be praying. Say, God, examine my heart over this next week. Show me the areas that I'm holding on to so we can pursue him and experience all that he has for us. So we got to examine our hearts. We can't stop there. Look at the very next verse, verse 5. Samuel said... Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. And when they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. They fasted that day, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. Now this is fascinating to me, because what this shows me is that if after we examine our hearts, the next thing we have to do is we have to pour out our water. I mean, does that strike you as odd? That was how they worshiped. They poured out their water. Like they get there and they're praying and confessing and they're fasting and all those things may be great things for us to do in this next week as we prepare for above and beyond. But then it says, they poured out their water. I mean, I just try to put it in modern day context. Let's say you walk in and like halfway through the first worship song, like people take their water bottles and they're like dumping it all over the place and you're looking around like, these people are crazy. Like, can we get free refills? Like, how does this work? But they're pouring out their water. Why would they do that? So it sent me on this like deep dive into why these people are are worshiping by pouring out water. And the more I studied, the more it made sense to me. Because remember, this is the ancient Near East. Okay, what is something that you don't have easy access to, but everybody needs to survive is water. Right? Water was one of the most valuable resources that you could have because not everybody could just walk outside and get it. You couldn't just turn your faucet on and have access to it. Water was extremely valuable. And so oftentimes as an act of worship, the people would pour out their water. And what happens when you pour it out? Can you get it back? No, it goes in the ground. They say, God, I'm trusting you to supply all my needs. I'm giving out something that's valuable as a way of showing you I'm giving you my life. I'm pouring my life out for you, God. And man, what, what an amazing thing, because we, we continue that tradition today when we sacrifice things that are valuable to us to say, God, I'm trusting you to supply all my needs. And it made me think, where else in the Bible have there been instances where people poured out water? And there's this story about Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm going to read a few verses in a minute. You don't have to turn there, but write that down. Don't just take my word for it. Study it later. 1 Kings chapter 18. But Elijah's a prophet in the nation of Israel at a very interesting time because they've kind of turned away. They have this king who's a weak king. He's not a strong ruler. His wife is kind of running the show, and she's convinced him to make Baal worship the official religion of the nation of Israel. Now, as a prophet, Elijah's super upset about this. How could you turn your back on God? So he's kind of got this confidence, this, um, some would say, arrogance about him. So he says, you know what? I'm going to throw it down, and we're going to have a duel between the the God, Baal, and our God. So you gather your best prophets together. I'll be the prophet on behalf of God, and we're going to see whose God is the real God. And so they, they gather the nation of Israel all together on this mountain. And when the day arrives, there's dozens of prophets for Baal on one side, and there's little old Elijah on the other side. So the prophets of Baal get ready, and they set up their their sacrifice, and they start singing and dancing, and nothing happens. And so they sing louder, and they dance wilder, and nothing happens. It's at this point, point. this is why I like Elijah, he starts to trash talk them a little bit. He says, "Um, hey, uh, maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe you should try shouting a little louder. Uh, Maybe he's on break. Maybe he went to the restroom. You know, if it was today, he might say, you know, like, have you tried texting him? Okay, like, it doesn't seem like he's doing anything. In fact, they go so far as the prophets of Baal start cutting themselves to try to get the attention of their God, but nothing happens. And that's when Elijah says, all right, you've had your turn. Now it's my turn. That's where the story picks up. First Kings chapter 18, verse 30. It says, then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So all the people approached him. And then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about four gallons. Next, he arranged the wood cut up the bowl and placed it on the wood. And he said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned on the wood. And then he said, a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said, a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. He even filled the trench with water. So when it's Elijah's turn, he sets up this altar. He repairs the altar that had been torn down. And he takes this wood, and he arranges it. He cuts up the bull and puts it on the altar. And then he digs this massive trench all the way around, and he calls the nation of Israel together. He says, guys, guys, come here. He says, I need a volunteer. And so I need, I need people to take these four water pots, and I want you to fill it with water, and I want you to dump it over the whole thing. And they do that. He says, all right, do it again. They do that. Do it a third time. And finally, after the third time, not only is the offering soaked, the wood soaked, the altar soaked, the trench is full of four gallons of water, this valuable commodity. And as I think about this, I'm like, okay, where do they get the water? And, and actually, what we know from history is there's a little creek that's nearby. It's not a lot, but there's a little. And you would think that's where they got the water, except for the fact That seven years earlier, Elijah prayed that God would stop the rain, and he did. And so for seven years, there hadn't been any rain. There was a drought. Every creek was dried up. In fact, they could have gone to the sea to get the water, but it would have taken about a day to get there and back, and they do it three times, and it doesn't seem like this is like a three- or four-day thing. It seems like it all happens at the same time. So the question is, where did Elijah get the water? Now, if you're in the ancient Near East and you have to make a trip that's going to take you the whole day to get there, you're probably not going to pack up your whole house, but you're probably going to pack up a few very important things. And if you're in the desert, you're likely to pack what? Water. And so these people are there with their water, which is even more valuable because it's in the middle of a drought, and I kind of get this picture because I used to think this was Elijah, like, you know, dump the water out, and I'm going to, like, dunk on these other prophets and just show them how bad God is. But that's not what's going on. He goes listen, here's the altar, but I'm not doing this alone. We're all in this together. And so he takes these buckets, and I believe they start passing them around to the Israelites, and they start putting water in. And they do it not once, not twice, but three times. And I wonder if it's because the first time, Not everybody gave. And the second time there were still some people holding out. It wasn't until the third time that there was finally enough water to fill the whole thing up. My grandfather was the first Southern Baptist pastor to racially integrate churches in the Deep South. And so a few years after he had left that church, they invited him back for a homecoming. Anybody here ever been like to a Baptist homecoming service before? Yeah, a few of us. All right. Woo. So he comes back for this homecoming service and They ask him to speak, and after he speaks, they do something called a love offering. And all good Baptists know a love offering is when you don't have money in the budget to pay the speaker, so you pass around the offering plate at the end, and you put a few dollars in to pay the speaker. Well, this particular church, they pass it around, and the pastor looked in and said, that's not enough, pass it again. Looked around and said, that's not enough, pass it again. He passed it until there was enough money to pay him what he thought was fair for my grandfather to make. Now listen, I've run that idea by our team here at Bridgepoint before, but they didn't go for it. But that's like what Elijah's doing here. He's like, keep passing it. We, we need to walk. We're all in this together. And when they finally give enough, they pour it out. And it's at that moment... That he prays, God, reveal yourself, and God sends a fire from heaven that consumes the wood, consumes the altar, consumes the offering, and laps up every bit of water. They witnessed a miracle. But listen, don't miss this. You don't get the miracle until you're willing to pour it out. You don't get the miracle until you're willing to give God what is most valuable to you. Now, they're in a predicament because now they have to go back home, right? Right? And they might be thinking to themselves, well, that was cool. And then God showed up, and we can worship him. We know he's a true God, but now I don't have water. And we're in the middle of a drought. It hadn't rained for seven years. So we skip down to the last few verses, verse 42. It says, so Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel. He bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees, and then he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. So he went up, looked, and said, there's nothing. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. And on the seventh time, he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. See, after this is over, the Israelites head back home. And Elijah says, God, I know seven years ago, I prayed for you to stop the rain. Right now, I'm praying that you would bring the rain again. And so he goes up on this mountain, and he sends his servant, go check the sea. What's out there? The servant comes back and says, nothing. Elijah says, no, 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 go check Still nothing. No, no. Go check. Seven times he goes back. On the last time he says, Hey, there's a cloud. It's only as big as a man's hand, but there is a cloud. And Elijah actually says, Hey, tell the king he better get his chariots ready, because the sky is about to open up. And in the very next verse, it says, The skies darken and water pours out like never before. So imagine being those Israelites on the way home. They're walking, they've just poured out their water, have no idea where their next water's coming from, and all of a sudden they feel something on their head. And then again. And then all of a sudden, more water than they could possibly contain is released on them from God. See, God replaced not just what they poured out, but he gave them even more. If you want the miracle, you've got to be willing to pour it out. Have you ever heard the phrase, you can't outgive God? So that's because God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. See, when we ran from God, he ran to us. When we rejected him, he made a way to accept us. And Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And there's nothing we could do that would outgive that single act. But even more than that, I believe that when we give to God, he always makes sure our needs are taken care of. And there could be plenty of people who would be sitting there and saying, you know what, it's crazy to pour out your water in the middle of a drought. How how could you do that? It's crazy to do this. I mean, think of all the family members you have to take care of. There's people who are going to say, it's crazy to give for above and beyond in the middle of a pandemic. There are things that you have to take care of. There are contingency plans in place. And listen, it's never about giving. It is a matter of the heart. And I believe that if we're willing to pour out, then God will take care of every need over and above anything we could ever ask or imagine. We have to be willing to pour it out. And I believe that if we examine our heart and if we pour it out, we can do the last thing. Flip back over to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 7. It says, when the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, their rulers marched up towards Israel. And when the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. The Israelites said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he will save us from the Philistines. So Samuel's got the whole nation together. They're worshiping. And all of a sudden, the Philistines, the bad guys, they see this and they say, now's our time to attack. They're not going to be able to stop us. There's nothing they can do to to prevent us. Now's the time we're going to stamp out Israel once and for all. And as they're sitting there, the Israelites can see the Philistine army coming, and they say, Samuel, don't stop praying for us. And so Samuel actually goes in the next verse, he sacrifices a goat, he prays, and as the Philistine army approaches, God thunders from the heavens. The Philistine army is thrown into confusion, and the Israelites attack, and they defeat this much stronger, larger army because God showed up, and that's why they raised their Ebenezer. That was their if-not-for-God moment. If not for God, we would have been destroyed. If not for God, the the enemy's army would have overtaken us. If not for God. And I believe this shows us that if we examine our hearts and we pour out our water, we can expect God to move. I believe we can expect God to move. And I think so many times in our lives, we, we were setting our expectations so low. I wonder if the reason you're frustrated with God is because he's actually meeting your expectations. For some of you, you need to raise your level of expectation for what God can do in your life. You need to believe for something bigger. In fact, in our above and beyond offering envelopes, there's only two questions on this little card. It's not really a question. It says one thing I'm thankful for in 2020 and one thing I'm praying to God for in 2021. And here's the thing. For some of you, you need to take that card. You need to rip it up because what you said you were believing God for is not big enough. If the God we worship is the same God who showed up and defeated the Philistines, if the God we worship is the same one who healed the lepers, if he's the same one who gave sight to the blind, if he's the same one who can raise people from the dead, there is nothing that God cannot do in your life. And I believe some of us have to start praying bigger prayers as we head into 2021. Because when we prioritize God, I know that he will move. I want to end with this story that I know a lot of you are familiar with, but I think it bears repeating because we're coming up on a very important anniversary here at Bridgepoint next week. Because this time last year, we were at a different facility. There were two different buildings. Our kids and adults were separated by a good distance. And the building was great for a number of years, but there was a lot of space and we had fair rent, but just so much square footage that, I mean, it was a burden sometimes to carry that kind of a lease. And, I'm going on my sixth year of pastor here at Bridgepoint now and every year I've been here we've seen our attendance continue to grow which is only by the grace of God and then in the summer of 2019 something happened that I don't know why it happened still don't know why but just in the summer our giving like dropped off a cliff and so we ended last year down about 12% in our giving now imagine that you had to take a 12% pay cut but you had to take it all over three months That might cause some stress in the house, right? You've got to dip into savings a little bit. Everybody gets a little little snippy at each other. And man, I was feeling the tension and I was saying, God, I I don't understand. I feel like we're doing everything right. And on top of that, my wife and I kind of made this commitment. We always want to give at least $1 than we did the year before. And so every year we want to be able to say this is the most we've given in 2019. We were able to give above and beyond just $1 more. And I don't say that to say we're heroes. I just say that to say, we examined our hearts, and we poured it out, and we were wondering, God, why haven't you moved? God, where, where are you? And so I remember we got to the end of our Above and Beyond series, and I was coaching my two younger sons in soccer, and they had a tournament, so I took them off to their tournament. And my wife went out to eat with some friends at Mexican, as all good Christians do after church on Sunday. and And to say that we eat Mexican often is, an understatement, okay, I'm not saying that we've probably put some of the staff's kids through college, but pretty close, and so our kids don't always love going to eat Mexican for the third or fourth time that week, so she's with my oldest, and he says, I don't want to eat Mexican food, and she's a better parent than I am, because my parenting philosophy is suck it up, you'll get over it, builds character, but she says, all right, what do you want, and he says, well, I really want Wendy's, so she goes to Wendy's, and she actually goes in to order, remember when you could go into the fast food restaurants to order, and she goes in, and she places the order, and it's taking like 25 minutes. Now, that'll test your faith, right? Like, if you wait 25 minutes at a fast food restaurant, everybody's getting antsy. But when I go places, I'm loving the mask thing right now. Like, I don't want people to talk to me or recognize, just like, let me get in and get out, do my thing. But my wife loves to talk and meet people, and so she's talking to the people next to her, and come to find out they were part of a church that was moving to a different building. And so uh, she came home and told me, and So I actually emailed the next day, the pastor of the church. I said, Hey, I hope this isn't rude. I know we've never met, but I heard you're moving. Is that true? And if so, what's happening with your building? He said, Yeah, that is true. I don't know what's happening with the building. It's owned by the Sequoia Regional Library System. Email these people. And so I did. And there was a whirlwind over the course of a few weeks where we were able to sign a long-term lease for this current facility which has been a huge blessing because now our kids and adults are in the same building. But not only that, we were able to save because of property tax and some other things, over $80,000 a year on facility costs by moving into this facility, which means that as a church this year, we were able to give more away to missions than we ever have in Bridgepoint's history. See, all of that, God showed up and it wasn't on my timeline. Listen, there was a cloud and it was small. But God was moving. He's on his way. And listen, I know sometimes we're examining our heart and we're pouring it out and you haven't seen God move. Listen, just because you haven't seen him working doesn't mean that he's not working behind the scenes. Just because you haven't seen the promise doesn't mean that he's not working the process. And I'm here to tell you today that if you're willing to examine your heart and pour it out, he's gonna move in your life. He's going to move in ways you could never expect. And so as we sit here, seven days out from above and beyond, I want to challenge us as a church to be asking God, what are the idols in my life that need to be torn out? What is it that you're asking me to pour out? And I believe that we need to start praying bigger prayers and expect more from God in this coming year. Because if I know anything, is that when God moves, it always surpasses my expectations. So as we end our time together today, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I just wanna pray for us as we end our time together. God, I thank you. I thank you for the way that you've been so faithful in my life and the life of this church. I just pray that over the course of the next few days, you would examine our hearts. Reveal to us the areas that we need healing from. Reveal to us the idols in our life that need to be torn out and give us the strength to do that. I pray that you would help us to know what we need to pour out. Help us to have that kind of faith number for what you're calling us to give. And God, I'm praying right now, expecting you to show up in mighty and powerful ways. It's in the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call live groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you.